You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. Welcome to episode number 38 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page at facebook.com slash swbeyondfilms. Enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I am one of your hosts, Nathan P. Butler. With me, as always, my stalwart companion and the defender of the EU, Mr. Mark Herleman. Hey, Mark. Hey, everybody. Me and Whistler are excited. This is probably one of our favorite series out there. You know, we discussed this last episode with the Rogues, but... As me and Nathan were talking pre-show here, I've got a particular fond spot for some of the plot lines in this Wraith Squadron series. Very much looking forward to this, as is Whistler. Isn't it kind of a given, though, that Whistler's favorite book would be the series that the name came from? I mean, come on. Yeah, he is a little biased. I mean, I, I should probably just shut him down now before he gets all too excited. I just might, a little tin bucket. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I like also how, when, it, when we think about that real fast, about the droid aspect of this. You know, we didn't talk about that in Rogue Squadron, but Gate, you know, Gate was Wedge's, what, R5-D2 unit, I believe, could have been an R4-D2. And then we had Whistler that was introduced, which was an R2-D2 unit. You know, I, I like the fact that these books, the X-Wing series, if it will, gave the uh, droids a little more page time than, you know, what we really saw too much. It was like R2 was the only droid to really get his own spotlight and then wedge had his little moment in the shine with gate what did gate start out as he had a different name didn't he uh, r5d2 was wedge until his astromech it was called minoc because of how loudly it whistled it had its memory ripe wiped and uh uh was upgraded to an r5g8 or gate there you go so uh-huh. re- rewind and so i'm trying to think so he became gate then in race squadron right he became Gate in Back to War. Yeah, okay, so R5-D2, he was Minoc at that point. What about Back to War? He becomes R5-G8 and goes to Gate, which I, I love anytime you get a little droid moniker like that. Gate or Kate, all those different things. Uh, you know, I, And I got to say, I've always had a fond spot for droids. I mean, you know, you've got Jaina and her little droid, and you've got Koran with his, and Luke and his, and... There need to be more droids. I mean, Lebo rocks, I-5 rocks. There's not enough to be said about droids, in my opinion. Yeah, they're interesting as long as they have some level of, of intriguing personality as opposed to just sort of always sticking to the one-note type of characterization. Uh, but before we go too far afield here, we sort of hinted at it. Mark, what are we talking about this episode? Well, this episode... Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time. A long, long time in a galaxy far, far away. Or the simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue on our look back at the X-Wing novel series. Last episode, we discussed Michael Stackpole's X-Wing Rogue Squadron part. Now we're going to be tackling the Wraith Squadron part of the X-Wing novels by Aaron Alston. A great great series of books as you're about to find out so consider this your spoiler warning because here we go all right now to delineate these so we know exactly what we're talking about we're not talking about every one of alston's books because mercy kill is going to get its own episode in the near future uh what we're looking at this time is the raid squadron books 
which are, of course, Race Squadron, Iron Fist, and Solo Command around 1998, but also Aaron Alston's other sort of oddball X-Wing book, Starfighters of Adumar. So we've tackled the five stack pull books in the previous episode, the four earlier Alston books in this episode, and Mercy Kill, of course, Alston's return, we'll check out soon. You know, now this one was published in 1998, and, you know, this is, I think, right about the time that I started really looking into the books. Um, I was actually, like, probably just cracking open Heir to the Empire for my second time, the actual time I got all the way through the book and was like, hey, reading's actually fun. <laughs> but uh, we got the synopsis for this, a little summary here. It is Wedge Antilles' boldest creation. A covert action unit of X-Wing fighters, its pilots drawn from the dredges of other units, cast-offs and rejects, given one last chance. But before the new pilots can complete their training, the squadron's base is attacked by former Imperial Admiral Trigget, and Wraith Squadron is forced to swing into action, taking over an Imperial warship and impersonating its crew. The mission to gain vital intelligence about Trigget's secret weapons, to sabotage the Admiral's plans, and to lure him into an alliance trap. But the high-stakes gamble pits Wrath Squadron's ragtag renegades against the Empire's most brilliant master of guile and deception, next Grand Admiral Thrawn. Are they up to the challenge? If not, the penalty is instant death. You know, it's interesting that this series starts out not really giving you a sense of where it's going, at least not in terms of the back cover text, you know, the promo text. Wraith Squadron was a real change of pace. We got, as you mentioned in the previous episode, Mark, we sort of got the flip side of Rogue Squadron. Rogue Squadron started out as an ace pilot squadron, and they also did some ground missions, some intelligence-style missions. Now, it's flipped. Here we get something that is more of an intelligence team that actually winds up being an intelligence team once the squadron as a starfighter squadron is disbanded. And they are essentially, uh, by default, intelligence operatives, but they also have the flying skills to make them into their own sort of ace squadron. Not necessarily on par with rogue squadron, but getting fairly close, particularly with the leadership that they have. And I really, I remember when these first came out, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. You know, I really like Stackpole's books. I was a little bit wary of another author picking it up, especially since Aaron Alston was not someone who'd really been on my radar much before. But I gotta say, these books took it off in a very cool new direction. We wound up seeing a lot more humor this time around, and in this case, uh, we, we sort of focused a lot more on the pilots than we did on their particular struggles, their particular enemy. Iceheart got a lot of play in the original X-Wing books, and this sort of second round of X-Wing books tended to focus much, much more on the pilots. So much so, though, that, as I said, they don't even mention Zinge as being part of the Race Squadron storyline in that first book's cover text. But I would think that anybody who is just coming in to read these books at the time they were being published, maybe they hadn't picked up Wraith Squadron, they said, oh, hey, look, there's two X-Wing books sitting there. They see Wraith Squadron next to Iron Fist, but then they pick up Iron Fist and read its back cover text, and it mentions Zinge as who they're up against I can only imagine someone picking it up at the time, sort of shaking their head like, really? Because, remember, we don't see the end of the battle with Warlord Zinj until the courtship of Princess Leia. That's a key part of courtship of Princess Leia. So it's almost as though in setting up this series, they were setting up something that would be a good place for humor, a characterization, developing new ideas, developing Wraith Squandra for future books, but 
we sort of knew going into it, or at least by the second book's cover text, that if this was going to focus a lot on Zinj, this was not going to be like the first four books. This is going to be a story that cannot, by definition, end in its last book. It only can set us up for a book that we have already read. That, in and of itself, made it an odd proposition going into it. A good series, but it's always going to feel a little bit odd when you get to the ending of it, because the big enemy they're trying to take down can't be taken down in the last book. It had already happened in a book published years earlier. I actually, I like the way that worked out. I mean, it was it was back there when the EU was really starting to flesh out, and you had the sense of, okay, they're really working hard to make sure that these fit. And, you know, you take the hammer, you line it up with the nail, and you just drove that sucker all the way in when you mention humor. I mean, I think this series, hands down, has the best humor out of all the Star Wars book series out there. Uh, you know, when you have the interactions between Wes Jensen and Wedge Antilles, I, I mean, I love it. I mean, okay, we'll, we'll talk about this aspect of it. Uh, Wes gets to go out and select the pilots for the new program. And one of them he selects that he's telling Wedge about is an Ewok pilot named Ketch. And the whole running gag of Yub Yub Commander that even to this day, you say Yub Yub Commander to anyone who's read these books and they know exactly what you're talking about because it's an ongoing joke for quite a while. And, I mean, Ketch didn't even exist, but yet played an integral part in a later story even. And yet he also served as a setup for Piggy who you also get to learn a little more from in Mercy Kill when we get to that. But Piggy, when he was introduced, Wedge didn't believe Wes because he'd already heard about this fake Ewok. So yeah, talking Gamoran? Yeah, right. I, I, and that's part of the beauty here is the playoff between these two. It had a, a very, I don't know, uh, A-team, Hannibal Lecter, and and, and uh, face feel to it. I don't know. I, did, I sort of think that the, the, the way that the team came together it felt much more natural, I think, than it felt in the original X-Wing books. Because we got characters who, I mean, we kind of expected by this point, after the first books, that some of them are going to die. So we're always expecting sort of quick entrances and quick exits of characters. And by the time this was over with, I mean, you get to Solo Command, just talking about the initial Raid Squadron storyline. Good lord, it's got like a three-page dramatist persona just to include all the characters that need to be included for Raid Squadron, for Zinja's forces, for Rogue Squadron, and other sort of incidental personnel that show up throughout the book. It really was sort of a, a quickly growing thing, and now that we were used to the way that pilots would come in and out, I think we were more willing to accept... A lot of oddball stuff, you know, the catch as the joke, you know, with the, the yub yub commander kind of stuff. But something like Piggy, you know, a talking Gamorrean, an intelligent Gamorrean who's been altered, uh, Runt, who sort of looks like a horse. I'm not sure that we would have accepted these characters as readily with as odd as it is to try to visualize them while we're reading. Because remember, at this point, there's no pictures of them. Uh, I don't think we would have picked them up as readily if it had not been for the previous four books that got us used to the idea of you're going to have some odd characterizations. You're going to have some people coming in and out. You just got to kind of roll with it. You mix that with the humor we get from Alston pretty much from the get-go, and it sort of opens our minds to possibilities for characterizations and, and species for characters that maybe in previous books we would have sat back and said, no, that's not believable, and sort of had it break that fourth wall on us. In this case, it worked. But I think it only works because we, we'd sort of been set up for it leading into it. I think that's why we've seen some people in reading Mercy Kill, where the primary character is Piggy, uh, Vort Sabinring, Piggy, from Wraith Squadron, 
uh, there's a lot of folks who are sort of stepping back and having trouble getting their mind around a Gamorrean who talks and such as the primary character and at the same time are also having issues dealing with the idea of a Yuzhan Vong scut as part of Wraith Squadron. Uh, in the context of Wraith Squadron, this stuff's nothing new, though it is unique to go with, with that particular primary character species. But for someone who hasn't read the older books, who's just coming into it now, because, I mean, it's been over a decade since these were printed, I can see how it would be jarring. There is no setup now, like we sort of were set up for the unusual characters back then. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of really good characters. I mean, I, I mentioned that in Rogue Squadron series, I liked the characters, but there was so much more going on in this one. I mean, you've got characters like Keltaner, who turns out his father was murdered, no less, by Wes Jensen. And and how that whole plot rolls out was was great. You have uh, Runt, who's a horse-looking-like guy who's got basically multiple personalities where each one's a different you know persona. He's got a pilot that would always go crazy. And his, his issue at the beginning of it was the pilot would take over and go running out there. And I recall Kale ended up locking his... his his targeting bracket on him to kind of, you know, I'm going to vape you out of the sky if you don't get in line, which worked into the story plot of his own father, because that was in a sense what happened with Wes. Wes was forced to shoot his Kel's father down in the middle of a battle because Kel's father kind of went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and, and launched the attack early and was going to blow the ambush. So there are all these little tiny things that kind of tie back to each other throughout this. You've got also like uh, Nim Donos, the uh, sniper and sole survivor of Talon Squadron. Oh man, that chapter was just an awesome chapter, and and that for me I think is some of the stuff I like. You know, we I mentioned at the beginning of this how I like the R two units. Face has one uh, gadget. Oh, I love that droid. Face always has the coolest toys. You know, and I mean I guess later Face really does take the role of Face from the A team in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, the diversity of characters was very nice in the initial Raid Squadron arc. These first three books, or books five through seven, if you want to call it that, in the series. You know, we got uh, essentially a group of characters who are all, they're kind of the misfits. You know, the misfits of the Starfighter Corps, or bring, being brought into the Starfighter Corps. I felt like I sort of connected much more with the characters in Stackpole's initial Rogue Squadron series, a little bit more than these, probably because those were more consistent throughout and they weren't quite as often at each other's throats or sort of butting heads. In this particular series, I think the characters were much more diverse, but I'm not sure that I ever really got into their heads quite as much or got as connected to them. Though I will still say that one of the saddest moments in all of, of Star Wars novels is the death of Ton Fanon and, and Face's reaction yeah. to it that we get throughout this series. But beyond those kinds of moments that give us connection, I didn't feel nearly as connected with the pilot's in this particular arc. I mean, they 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 remind me, in a sense, if you're a fan of Criminal Minds, they remind me of sort of, you could say, Criminal Minds, the main series, is like the Rogue Squadron books. You know what to expect from the characters. They're all professionals, although they may have their little quirks. For a while there, there was Criminal Minds Suspect Behavior, which was like this little spin-off series with Forrest Whitaker, I believe it was, as the main character. And all of his team are the ones that are sort of the misfits of the FBI. You know, one of them had been in prison, one of them was a sniper who came from abroad and that sort of thing. That's kind of like what Wraith Squadron feels like to me. They're a solid team, you understand what they're working for, who they're working for, what side they're on, but at the same time, you always felt there's a little more to the characters and, that you don't know, and that they're more likely to wind up turning on each other sometimes as being able to complete the mission. It's not so much, like in the Rogue books, more a matter of the characters having to uh, defeat the insurmountable odds being brought on by the enemy, 
Here, in some cases, it's almost like they're, the insurmountable odds they're facing are more their own issues, like, like Kel being a perfect example with his issues having to do with the death of his father, uh, with Mendonos and the, the loss of his fellow squad mates previously. They all have those type of issues they are going to have to resolve for themselves as they go along, which again is why I would say that this is a much more much more focused on the characters dealing with their issues than the broader scheme of things with Zinge. I mean, the conflict against Zinge is a big part of it. You know, when we went back and did the, the map for the Atlas, I had to go through these in great detail, all three of these, to be able to eventually connect it to Courtship of Princess Leia so we could have that hunt for Zinge map and all. But as detailed as it gets and as many battles they fight against Zinge, it never really felt like Zinge was the primary antagonist to me. It always felt like it was something more personal, more within. Which makes me wonder why, then, do I still feel like I didn't connect with these characters as much as I did with the Rogue Squadron characters? Are they just uh, so far afield from my personal experience that I can't do it? Or was it because we were focusing so much on the, the conflict between them and conflict internally that we never got a chance to see them as consistently? I don't know. But it's, it's weird to see something that feels more like a character study, and yet I don't think the characters themselves played out as strongly as in the previous four. Well, it's almost like, as a real-world example, SEAL Team 6 going after Osama bin Laden, you know, where, you know, they're seeking him out, they're trying to hunt him down, he's the big enemy all this time, but they never really engage him, and when they do, it's, you know, it's like the do-or-die, granted, in this situation, they actually don't get him and he gets away, and, and we come around to that later, but... The whole aspect of the Misfits side of it, though, I loved how that was played up. Uh, we had General Crispin, who who was flat out animately against the idea of what Wedge was trying to do. And then you had Admiral Akbar, who pretty much said, if this is a success, you're a general. And if this is a failure, you're going to be a general. <laughs> I love the way he kind of forced Wedge into that role. But Wedge's big thing was that he took Rogue Squadron, which was the best of the best, the poster boys and girls of the new Republic. And, you know, they were the, the pomp and circumstance. They were the ones that were always being used for all the demos. You know, they were, they were the golden ones and wedge wanted to isolate and show that even the dreads of society had something to contribute to the new Republic that, that anybody could step up and become a hero. And, you know, and that that too is is the journey that we watch all these characters go through. I mean, for me, I have a hard time saying who the main characters of the story were because they all had their own little story to tell. I, I would say Kel and Wedge are probably going to be the, the top two. I mean, Wedge is the struggle from the veteran and and Kel is kind of like the Koran horn of the, of the story here. You know, you you get a lot of his point of view, a lot of his in the simulator and and that kind of stuff as he's trying to figure it out. I don't know. I, I like these kind of, of books where, where you get to see a squadron being set up and, and set together. Kind of reminds me of Armageddon when it first kicks off and you watch them start doing all their, their uh, mission training. That's true. And it's not just that they're being set up for the missions. I mean, we see the squadron themselves come together and these books do set up what we see in Courtship of Princess Leia. But we also, I mean, I think it's kind of become kind of the given at this point. I think because of some of the precedent set by Stackpole in the first four books... We're seeing the different pilots kind of pairing off by the time we're at the end. I mean, by the time we get to shortly after Solo Command, you can pretty much assume that any couples that we saw that were quasi-couples or actual couples within these, next time you'll see them in a book, they'll be married. Or they'll be married and have kids. I mean, we're seeing the beginnings of a whole bunch of pairings. I remember this being that 
era of Star Wars books. When you get to around this time, this is right around the time uh, that they're pushing into, if I remember correctly, they're pushing into um, oh, uh, New Jedi Order stuff. They're push, they're or about to push into New Jedi Order stuff. They're pushing into the Hand of Thrawn duology, you know, where it's finally pairing off Luke and Mara. It had sort of become the expectation that many of these characters, if you see a male and female working together very closely as partners or something or squad mates, uh, yeah, they're probably going to wind up together. That's actually why initially I had planned on when I was doing the the Tales story, Equals and Opposites, I was planning on putting Kyle Katarn and Jan Ors together because that was just sort of the thing at the time was, oh, they worked together for a long time, they flirted with each other, yeah, next time you see them, they'll be married, especially if it's years later. Only in that case, I was specifically told, yeah, no, we don't want them to be married yet if they ever are going to be. And that became an entire plot point of that comic is the idea of, you know, him wanting to and her not wanting to, at least not in a time of war. But that's what you get here is a whole lot of let's pair them off, let's pair them off, let's pair them off. And you can actually go down the dramatist personae, for instance, and kind of connect the dots, really. Like, like is this character <laughs> alive? No, this character's dead. Is this character alive? Yup, now who's he paired with? Aha, that one. This character, nope, dead. This character, alive, okay, who's he paired with? Because most of these wind up being pairs. I mean, aside from Runt and Piggy, it's like everybody was getting play out of their squadron mates. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. You know... It's one of those things where I kind of saw that as as that was the era when the next generation was was being worked on or when they first started talking about a next generation of characters. But I think that that kind of evolved into what really became the first generation of EU characters. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of like the, the ground floor of our what we're now starting to see as our next generation characters. Um, for a moment with Mercy Kill here, you know, there is a, a, a child of a couple different, you know, race and stuff and other characters that have, that, you know, their offspring is now involved in the book. And I'm actually I'm enjoying that. It's something that, you know, since these books first came out and started doing that with bringing in these newer characters, it's something that I've kind of been waiting for for a long time. It's like they were introduced. We saw the pairings and all this stuff. And then, you know, we didn't hear about them again until the middle of the New Jedi Order. And then the race kind of popped up and they were just there for an intelligence type scenario. And it was a great use of them. But it was one of those things where I was just kind of like, really, I wish we had some more. And that was one of the things I liked about the New Jedi Order is they really went out of their way to bring in the race, the rogues, things like that, and and utilize them. And that's, you know, that was something about this whole series, though, that I liked. There was a lot of utilization that was good. We get to uh, Nightcrawler, which is a Karelian Corvette that they end up uh, capturing. And the way they go about capturing this and then retrofitting it, MacGyvering it, if you will, and making it their mobile base, I think that is the plot point that, that for me, is my favorite. Uh, I'm... I'm always happy when a plot like that comes up into any story when we get to see them, you know, turn and, and craft something and make it and, and be sneaky. I, I don't know. There's a very oceans 11 kind of 18 feel to the race squadron. And I think the way that it works, works so well. That's why I enjoy it so much. It's a definite, another one of those books where I'm like, you, you need to go and read it. You got to give yourself, you know, the shot. There's so many characters, you know, you mentioned Tom, Tom's one of those characters that I, I fell for immediately. The guy's allergic to Bakta, and he's a doctor. And so he's half robot. He's half cyborg because he cannot be healed by the modern medicines that would help him. So anytime he gets injured, he has to have a replacement part. So he's almost most more machine now. You know, think of uh, uh, Kanos from uh, Mortal Kombat, if you will. And, you know, y you mentioned his death scene. I, I have a model of a Star Destroyer up over my roof in my bedroom 
it sits above me when I sleep. And when I look up at that, I always think of that scene when he's sitting there laying in Face's lap, you know, and they're looking up and they watch the Iron Fist go up above. I It is one of those deaths that is just profound. It'll always be there with me. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I, I'm bittersweet when it comes to deaths, you know. I mean, I hate to see a good character die, but when it's done well, Ton, Ganner Rysod, Anakin Solo, maybe Chewbacca and the sacrifice of saving Anakin Solo, I will enjoy it. I will, you know... It'll always have a near and dear spot for me. And Tons was one that definitely impacted me. It was one of the first deaths that really shook me. I was just like, I couldn't believe it. And yet it worked so well when it came to Face's character development. You know, we talk about the fact, well, we haven't talked about it yet. I've been thinking about the fact that Face, you know, he gets his nickname just because he happens to be a, a old uh, hollow drama actor from back when Palpatine was in power when he was a kid. He did a lot of the propaganda stuff. But then gets this huge scar on his face because some of the rebel sympathizers were kind of angry with him and, and they gave it to him. And so he kind of like had this chip on his shoulder and Ton's death in a lot of ways helped him get over that. And it was, it was again, very profound. It's like it's it's one of those things where I don't want to give too many details because I want you to go and read these books. They're just that good. That's true. And when we talk about characterization, one that we can't leave out of these initial three books, at least of Alston's run, we got to include Han Solo. And it's weird to say that, you know, this is a great series for Han Solo and characterization because Han Solo has been the primary character of so stinking many books. Him, Luke, and Leia, the big three. But I got to say, one of the things we didn't get to see very much with Han was his era in which he actually was a general, where he actually was commanding Republic military forces. I think in some cases that had people raising their eyebrows when they saw Crimson Empire 3, Empire Lost. Because in that series, Han is out there leading a battle group, searching for the Republic's enemies, or the New Republic's enemies. And it seemed like at this time, a lot of the stuff that we had seen, I mean, put this all back into perspective, we've got Return of the Jedi, and then the first book we got printed after that, of course, was Heir to the Empire, five years later. And they'd been playing themselves outwards from that five-year mark further and further until it got to 15 years after Return of the Jedi with uh, the... Hand of Thrawn stuff, but from the standpoint of going earlier than the Thrawn trilogy, you really tended to only have, except for, you know, oddball stuff like uh, Ruins of Dantooine, you know, you'd only wind up tending to have things like Courtship of Princess Leia, the Glove of Darth Vader series or Jedi Prince series that at the time wasn't even considered in continuity anyway. It, it, elements hadn't been brought back in, had been pretty much pushed out. You really had Courtship of Princess Leia and Truth at Bakura, which is only a day later, so you don't get to do too much with the characters in terms of how far have they developed in a long period of time, because it's only a day. And then you got the X-Wing books. And here we wind up with Han in a position where he is still a general. He is still a big part of the New Republic military. He's not on his own anymore. He's still sort of within that command structure that somewhat shapes him, which draws a nice parallel to Wedge. And now he doesn't want to move beyond to wind up reaching that level of command. He wants to stay as a pilot as much as possible. Uh, to see Han in this particular light... I think goes a long way into making the way he is portrayed in other books make a little more sense and feel a little more solid. Like when he talks about not wanting to be a military commander in other books, when he chafes against being part of that structure in other books, we didn't really have much to go on as to, okay, how did he feel being in that structure when he was in the structure until these books did that? Uh, again, it, it is an, a somewhat unsatisfying ending, 
because we know that the whole clash with Zinj is going to have to come to a head in Courtship of Princess Leia, where it will focus almost entirely on Han, and you really don't get much in terms of X-Wing pilots taking part or being a big part of that plot. But Han's contribution here to the overall story and the story's contribution to him as a character, I don't think usually gets the type of recognition that it deserves. It's definitely something that is a high point of this series and of the Bantam era in terms of making stuff fit together. Absolutely. I mean, Han as General Solo was probably one of my favorite aspects of this book as well. You know, there, there's a lot about what you just said that, that strikes me. The one thing, though, that, that jumps out, you know, you mentioned how, how the whole Warlord Zinn thing kind of leaves it where it's an unsatisfactory ending. I would almost say that the ending of this book is more so the redemption of these misfits that that I kind of look at it from uh, from uh, Crespin's eyes. You know, he, he saw them as a complete waste. But by the time the book series is over, you know, they've proven themselves. And, and I think that that's the story. That's the hero's journey we're witnessing here. And that's supposed to be our satisfaction is that we've witnessed them go from misfits and outcasts to an actual, you know, fighting unit, not just a fighting unit, but, you know, they turn into a prime fighting unit if you will um and then back on the droids you know i, I was wrong it was uh gadget was actually uh ton's r2 unit but there was quite a bit of r2 r5 units yeah i mean you're, you're talking about a, a starfighter squadron here but uh you've got chunky which was tyra's r5 gadget which was uh ton's r2 gate wedges r5 shiner which was donos's r2 squeaky their 3po unit 13, which was Kel's R2, which had a really interesting thing about the number 13, and Vape, which was Face's R2 that used to have the whole beer can that would pop out and stuff. And I, I just, you know, it's all these little things about each character that, that play into the overall plot that made the story so interesting. You know, we look at, we talked about in the last one about how uh, covers don't quite always play in. The Race Squadron cover, I mean, I always took it as the, uh, the follower station when they were doing the run through the, uh, trench there and and i love that it looks enough like it that okay yeah that's what we got there you know and, and that's another thing about this series you know that when you've got the starfighter combat stuff going on you get these cool pictures of it, it kind of helps you wrap your mind around it you got the the droids working with the pilots all these integral parts of what it had to be like for these pilots to be in this war you know you think about it from a real world standpoint you know these Pilots and stuff that fight in the wars right now, you know, we got these Red Tails movies and stuff like that. It's interesting stuff. You know, there's a lot going on there that, that common people don't know about. And that, for me, I think was one of the allures of this series was there were little details about what it was like to be part of the Starfighter Command. You know, things that you didn't really get aside from Luke flying down the trench. You know, you're just like, whoa, what's he doing? Luke, why did you turn off your targeting computer? Turn it on. Oh, wait, he's got the Force. That's a Jedi thing. This focused all on what it was like to be regular people. And I really I, I enjoyed that about it. That's a big part of, I think, why a lot of fans, when a fan group, I forget the name of the group, pardon me, this has been years ago, uh, put together a trailer for an X-Wing cartoon series that, that would have had a similar styling to something we would see, say, in Clone Wars, but it was done as an X-Wing series. You know, it, it blew people's minds because it seems so fertile. It's such a visual type of thing, starfighter dogfighting, and the characters can stand on their own where you wouldn't need to recast a lot of the film characters. This could have been something where you take all those integral parts, and it's one part fantasy, one part reality, because we, we like our films, we like our television a lot of times to have something we can relate to. And 
especially in a time of war like we've been in with the war on terrorism since 2001 or go back to the early 90s with the Gulf War, you know, American audiences at least see these types of things and they want to see these themes explored within fiction. And that could have been a perfect outlet to be able to do that with this type of series. It's got realistic characters in the sense that, you know, they, they have the trials and travails of being pilots, fitting in, getting over their own problems, and becoming this solid fighting unit. But I have to say, the twist on it is the nature, again, of the characters. You know, like Piggy and Runt and such. It almost feels like, and I don't know if this is going to sound insulting or not, I'm not trying to be, uh, a few episodes ago, we did an episode on Fantasy Flight Games and how they had Edge of the Empire, the new RPG that was coming. Since then, we had a couple where my voice sounded kind of weird. My apologies, it was the wrong microphone coming through the, the laptop and everything. But in that time, I've had a chance to play around with the Edge of the Empire book a little bit more. And looking at the Ray Squadron characters, it almost feels like the premise is, let's grab some pilot characters and have them fit the pilot mold and do something somewhat realistic with them. But... To actually create their actual species and character traits, let's grab an RPG book and just create whatever freaky type of characters we can. It almost feels like a role-playing game group got together and made a bunch of oddball characters just to see how they would work crammed together into situations. And that somehow translated over from fandom RPGs into <laughs> the Star Wars Expanded Universe because I got a this is a bizarre group. It's a bizarre group. You know, okay, you point out something that when I first got into reading the EU... That's part of why I started buying the RPG books. I was convinced that Michael Stackpole, Timothy Zahn, and Aaron Alston all played RPGs together. Because when I first got my very first one and I was flipping through it in the Barnes and Nobles, I was like, oh, this is where they got all that info. And the more I started to buy back then, the more I was just like, wow, this is a plethora. If you're looking to write any kind of fan fiction, those books are what you want. Forget the essential guides. Granted, now they're a lot better than they are back then, but those things had such minute details that, you know, would be something that if you lived in the galaxy far, far away, it wouldn't be no thing. But if you didn't, you would never even think about these kind of things. And that was one of those things. When I first read all these books the first time, I kept getting that feeling like, okay, these guys all had to play RPGs together, you know, especially once I got the books and I was reading through them. I'm like, okay, obviously these guys know something about it. And it was like that whole, like, I don't know, it's almost like finding like this whole underworld, uh, you know, you're just like, there's this whole other side of the EU with RPG material. I don't even have to play it. I just got to go and buy it, read it. And, oh my God, I'm a genius. That was a lot like the approach that people took to, I mean, I know that that was the approach I took to the RPG stuff. I looked at it for the, the background material more so than the game mechanics, certainly. But that especially played into something like the Star Wars Adventure Journal when it was around, which had stories in there by Alston, by Stackpole, often building up characters from these series because you really had you know here's a bunch of fiction and here's a bunch of background information on the characters and oh by the way off to the side yeah there's those rpg stats just ignore them if you don't play uh, i think west end games deserves a lot of credit for creating material that gamers and non-gamers alike would get into what wizards of the coast did not do that nearly as much um what stands out to me uh, as something we haven't touched on is the one book that's not within this trilogy of Wraith Squadron that is also by Alston that we mentioned early on. It's a book that focuses around Wedge, Tycho, Jansen, and Hobby, and that's pretty much it. It doesn't tend to bring in much in the way of Wraith Squadron or Rogue Squadron because it focuses on those characters on essentially a diplomatic mission to a planet that particularly focuses on 
uh, your martial abilities, your military abilities, your starfighter prowess, your hand dueling prowess, and so forth. And that is Starfighters of Adumar. And I got to say, Starfighters of Adumar is one of my favorite Star Wars books ever. I mean, it was hilarious straight through. Yeah. It was fun. You got to see Rogris wind up coming over to the New Republic. You see a, a very more personal story, just a few Imperials, a few New Republic agents going up against each other. It starts out with the end of the most ridiculous relationship in the EU, or one of the most, which is Quizooks and Wedge, especially since Quizooks. Her brain is mostly gone, you know, as a Hamlet would say, her wits diseased because, you know, of what happened to her to try to rip the, the ideas out of her mind from the Maw. And we finally get to see Wedge and Ayala get together. It's got all these great character moments and all this great character development in what is essentially a one-off story that doesn't need to be read by anybody to get the broader EU. Uh, it's one of the few books of Star Wars that has a line in it other than something that's just a quick little iconic line like, uh, uh, but it was so tastefully done or artistically done or whatever it is that, you know, Zahn says, or excuse me, Thrawn says, slip of the tongue, when he gets stabbed and dies. Uh, there's a whole little passage from this one that is always one of the things that jumps to mind when somebody says Star Wars and humor or, hey, are there any quotes that stand out to you from the EU? Because oftentimes there aren't. There's a segment in here. Uh, to, to put things in perspective, if you haven't read the book, they're on a planet that is very focused on honor and essentially dueling and starfighter combat. Very much like, say, a Game of Thrones type of, of atmosphere where it's all about honor and challenging people. And if you defeat them, well, you've got more honor uh, now at this point. And they're trying to win over the locals to try to get them to side with the New Republic because it's only now that they have started to open themselves up to allying with either the New Republic or the Empire. Before that, they were mostly cut off, though we find that that's not exactly true through some of the things that Ayala reveals. And so for this this whole book, up until about chapter 11, they're playing all nicey-nice. They're playing by the little rules, and it's driving them crazy to the point where they can't do their job because of all this craziness about the honor and how do you make sure you don't insult someone and what's the proper procedure for this and that and all the ceremony. And it gets to a point where they're suggesting an attack. And uh, Jansen says, uh, as leading out of their plans for the attack, he says, so our advanced units can fire their missiles up at their squadrons passing overhead, perhaps taking out multiple fighters per missile in those first few seconds. And in the middle of this briefing, Hobby interrupts. Ooh, I volunteer. I want that. Let me do that. Please. To which Wedge <laughs> kind of looks over at Tycho. He's like, have you ever seen behavior like this? Only when he really, really needs to run to the refresher. Hobby, why? And this is where the iconic bit comes in that I will never forget from this book. Because, says Hobby, I am sick of it. I'm sick to death of, hello, I'm so-and-so, and I've killed this many enemies, and I challenge you, and we bow and go by the rules and say cute things to one another, and isn't it nice that we're all dead now? Tycho, I want to shoot something. I want to blow something up. No apologies, no advance warning, just lethal efficiency before frustration kills me. Perfect, <laughs> iconic Aaron Alston right there. I love it. I love this book. If you read no other X-Wing books, this one has very little bearing on the continuity. Read Starfighters of a Dumar. It is Alston at the height of his humor, and it's still a great book that doesn't feel like it's bogged down by the humor. The humor just adds to it, doesn't detract at all. And that is 100% one of the things I love about Aaron's works. Uh, it doesn't matter what books he's doing. He always finds ways to slip humor in, and it is funny. I, I mean, it's not just like, ah, usually you have to stop the book down for a second and get a good chuckle out. 
you know, and, and you're talking about favorite parts here. And it's funny, too, because I was going to say, hey, I'm going to read a part here. And then you said that. So now I'm like, I'm going to read two parts. <laughs> you know, I'd mentioned the Star Destroyer Iron Fist that I have the model of on my roof. It's not necessarily Iron Fist. But when I look up at it, I think of Iron Fist. And this is why. From Iron Fist, the book, page 185. A bit farther, and Fanon said in a hoarse whisper, face could barely hear over the whine of the repulsor lift, it's up there again. Iron Fist? Face looked up. The superstar destroyer was making another orbit. In the distance, pristine like the giant spearhead from some supernatural being from the long-forgotten mythologies of a hundred worlds, it drifted by not caring about the lives and deaths and victories and tragedies of the humans below. And when it descended, it would bring death. That, Face decided, was Iron Fist. And such a thing had no right to exist. If it took him forever, he would see it destroyed. He made sure his sudden revulsion did not make it to his voice. Not too intimidating from this far away, is it? He asked. Fanon didn't answer. I said, not too intimidating from here, is it? Fanon still did not respond. Face stood where he was, unwilling to turn and look to walk back on his cold, numbed legs to confirm what he feared. But the speeder bike slowly drifted forward until it was beside him. Fannin's chest did not rise or fall. But his organic eye was still open, directed upward, and his expression, for once, lacking pain, lacking the shields of sarcasms or manufactured self-appreciation, was that of a child wondering at the glistening beauty of the stars. Face's vision blurred as his own eyes filled with the first tears he'd shed since he was a boy. And I still, I mean, that scene, like I said, you know, some death scenes will always stick with you. The lead up to that moment, though, and the character stuff that happens in there, you know, we, we talk about the humor and stuff. There are some very, very deep moments in these books. And, you know, I, I mentioned how there's so many different main characters to the stories. It's hard to say, you know, who's the one that, that's the real eye on the prize of the story. They're, they're done so well. I mean, every character has their own amount of page time, but no one's wasted. None of the page time is wasted at all. I mean, you know, think of, think of a, a Nightcaller that I was mentioning here. This is another aspect of why I like it so much. It took him a better part of two days to retrieve the three undetonated Empelon mines and return them to Nightcrawler's bellyhold. The X-Wing pilots were rotated through duties on the Corvette so that everyone was at an almost adequate amount of sleep. Kel suggested some changes to Wedge and ended up pulling a succession of Corvette shifts while he and Cover implemented them. They welded metal sheets approximately the size of TIE fighter solar array wings between the escape pods hanging from the Corvette's flanks. They stowed two of the ball-shaped escape pods in the bellyhold and painted the others the same dark imperial shade as tie fighters then wedge personally flew the two remaining tie fighters to dock them at the empty escape pod hatches the end result was that from any scrutiny except close examination the tie fighters looked like escape pods and would actually be faster and safer to launch from than the bow hold with the tie fighters out of the bow hold kel and cooper disassembled the braces designed to hold them they used that metal and more from the belly hold to fabricate a new set of braces and rails three rows of them one above the other, built at the very rear of the hold. It would require delicate piloting, but an X-Wing could now use repulsor lifts to back into the bow hold and accept instructions from a ground-guided crew member to slide into the railed space to accommodate their strike foils. Once they reached the rear of the rails, they could be locked there by a metal bracket lowered into place. This gave them an array of three X-Wings by three. The strike foils 
on each row overlapping one another slightly. With the bow doors open, the X-wings in the center column could launch quickly and in relative safely. The six along the rails would probably keep accidents from happening. With nine X-wings in the bow hold and two more up on the top hold, Nightcrawler could now carry 11 X-wings with two TIE fighters. Nightcrawler was ready for action. This just kind of tells you the, the details of the pilots and the craftsmanship and the cleverness of Kel and Cooper. I mean, the fact that they were able to, to craft so many things with the materials on hand, it's almost like watching the Boy Scouts in action. You know, you send them out there with a couple of materials and they build you a campground in the middle of a space. These guys were literally floating out and drifting in space and yet managed to still capture a Carillion Corvette. And, and, ah. Uh, then they do all that to it. I mean, it was that I'm still wanting at some point to see this ship mysteriously show back up. It was such a cool base and the way they utilized it all throughout the story. I mean, uh, face was using his acting skills with the hollow projector to pretend he was being, uh, I think it was Admiral Triggett who was blasted up onto the roof of the ship through a hilarious, hilarious intrusion on piggy's part. And there was a lot of really fun things going on in this book, not just the humor. Yeah, I mean, this whole series, really, everything from X-Wing that we got up to this point as we were sort of moving out of the 90s, there was a lot of different facets to it. None of them can be said to be shallow works. And there have been some Star Wars books that have really been shallow works. Going back to, uh, I guess, what it was one of our folks who wrote in on the feedback episode just recently referring them to sort of middling uh, to poor books sometimes. There have been some that really we've read and enjoyed only because it was Star Wars, but looking back on it, you couldn't say much about what happened in the books. You could look back on them and you weren't quite sure if there was anything that felt momentous about it. Was there a reason why this book or this short story or whatever was even printed? You can't say that about the X-Wing series. Even Starfighters of Adumar and Ice Hard's Revenge, which are the two that are sort of the oddballs in the group. Ice Hard's Revenge playing into something that didn't necessarily need to be shown, and Starfighters of Adumar being essentially a side story that has no bearing on much of anything other than some character development. Um, you can't say that these are fluff books. They have what you should want in a Star Wars book. And I would still say they're some of the best examples of Star Wars books out there. Uh, from the beginning, back in 76, with Alan Dean Foster's novelization of A New Hope, all the way up until now in the most recent novels being released. Uh, one of these most solid series, and as we said last time, definitely one you should pick up and try if you haven't tried them out yet. I don't think you're going to find yourself at all wanting after having read these, although I would say that if you are going to read uh, the Wraith Squadron books leading up to Solo Command, do yourself a favor and make sure you also read Courtship of Princess Leia. It's going to feel a lot different in tone, but you're not going to feel as though you've seen the end of Zinge without that. But add that in, read the other books that they've got in the series up to book 9, and we'll be letting you know soon what we thought of book 10, of course. Indeed. You know, speaking of book 10 and Starfighters, I, I like how Starfighters was its own little story. You know, it, it did play into the overall everything else, but it was all on its own. What I will say about Mercy Kill is I get that same kind of feel. You know, you mentioned how Piggy is the main character there. Definitely feels like it's like a next chapter, not a continuation of what we've been getting. Starfighters of Adamar, though, it, it to me it showed us the state of the galaxy from a middle ground point of view. I mean, we see one of the fringe worlds and, you know, they're not necessarily afraid of the Empire, but they're not afraid of the New Republic either. And so it's kind of like, a you know, who's the better one there? And I like that that kind of gave you a sense of 
what's going on. I mean, a lot of the books at the time were all very much rebellion or, or, or New Republic point of view centric. And so that was like kind of the first time where it was like, well, yeah, there's still the Empire. There's still bad guys, but they're not like 100% bad. You know, there was actually some redeeming qualities to it and stuff like that. And it gave it a very good chance for that, you know, that concept to play out in the book. And I really I, I found that that was probably one of the bigger things about that book that I came away with, aside from the humor. Um, you know, when I think of Alston, I, I think of humor. His stuff is funny. It, and it's not just like, ah, ha, 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 he spilled soda down his pants funny. It is genuinely funny. <laughs> and of course, this is a series that has so many elements to it, so many characters, we really wouldn't have time to go into them all, as you'd expect. So be sure to send us your feedback, of course, on this episode. And also, you know, let us know what you think about things that we didn't get a chance to discuss, or things that you might be interested in seeing us discuss perhaps in the future once you go through and read these if you haven't yet. Uh, characters that we didn't get into, like uh, Ms. Sand Skimmer, for instance, or the whole Laura Notzel, Gara Petrothel, and all that kind of stuff, that intrigue that was going on. Oh, see, that girl, I, I just, I remember her messing with Nim so bad, I couldn't stand her. I was just like, oh, here's somebody, I want to see somebody throttle. I was just hoping that, that Sarkin or, or Star Skimmer, I thought somebody was going to have to throttle her. I was just like, come on, please. Somebody reach out and just club her upside the back of the head once. <laughs> See, there's a lot more we could be talking about, but of course our time here draws to a close. So folks, remember, you can listen to our show airing on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as streaming on the Star Wars Report website. Again, www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash swbeyondfilms, or you can just type Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways that you can interact with us on a daily basis. Not only can you post comments to us while you listen to the show, you might be heard on the show. Each month, we try to release those feedback episodes where we answer your emails and messages, assuming we have enough feedback to justify it. So if you have something to say about the episode, fire it off. You can email us at swbeyondfilms, right, same as our Facebook page and our Twitter, at starwarsfanworks.com. So, once again, this has been Nathan Butler, Mark and Whistler, the noisy ever Whistler, saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that you're going to read the X-Wing book series, because we want you to. Hey,